Hello, everyone. Welcome to a show we're calling The World in 2023. That's in partnership with The Daily Beast, Daily Beast foreign editor. Uh, Nico Hines is with us. How are you, sir? I'm very well. How's 2022 been to you? I would say it's been an awful year, but <laughs> I have kept cheery throughout. All right. Uh, an awful year. Has it been an awful year for Aisha Gould's cert independent journalist? Never. 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 Not 2021, not 2022. And I can't wait to tell you about 2020. All right. Vivian Walt, Paris correspondent for Time magazine. Did you bring your crystal ball? It's been quite a year and it's going to be quite a year. Mm. OK, that's a safe bet. Let's uh, let's see what Philippe Moreau-Chevalier, uh, columnist, commentator and political consultant. Well, we can't lose the World Cup uh, in 2023, so it will be. That's right. There's the Rugby be, World Cup coming yeah, up. France is going to win. It will be a good year for us. All right. Least, yeah. There we go. Throughout the year, uh, you can listen, like and subscribe to the world this week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and other fine streaming services. A safe pair of hands at the wheel. That's the message the Russian people uh, were given when Vladimir Putin drove his Mercedes across the Kerch Strait Bridge on December 5th. Saboteurs had badly damaged the road and rail link between Crimea and the mainland. Uh, Putin, who uh, for all the casualties and sanctions insisted just a couple of days later that it's all perfectly justified. Right now, there has been a lot of uproar about our attacks on the energy infrastructure of the neighboring country. Yes, we're doing it. But who started it? Who struck the Crimean bridge? Who blew up the power lines from the Kursk nuclear power plant? Who isn't supplying water to Donetsk? As soon as we move and do something in response, this scream and shout to the whole universe. This will not interfere with our combat missions. Nico Heinz, uh, the Daily Beast wrote about uh, that, uh, that statement by Vladimir Putin and the idea that this sense that perhaps, and again, this is Kremlinology, we don't really know what's going on in Moscow, that things were perhaps starting to come a little undone. I think it's, what's becoming increasingly clear is the gap between reality and the things that are coming out of Putin's mouth. Now, to us in the West, that's probably been the case for quite a while, although, you know, if we look at the likes of Trump and Farage, you know, it, not everybody sees it that way. Um, but I think what is happening now is that people in Russia are starting to see this problem. Nobody in Russia buys the idea that there's no water in Donetsk because of some sort of municipal issue with... Zelensky's uh, regime, they know it's because their president has been blowing it up but, and attacking it. But the independent polling firm Levada says, yes, uh, the Russian government's proving unpopular, but Vladimir Putin still has 70% approval ratings. Yeah, I think it's even high 70s. Um, I think that's come down from what it was a little earlier. But if you look at the polling in support of the war, something like only 30% of people in Russia support the war continuing. And I think that's a huge sea change. If you look at, say, 2014, when Putin went into Crimea, he took the whole people with him. Philippe mm. Chevrolet, again, this is for domestic consumption when we hear clips like the one uh, we just heard. And uh, while the Russians have had mixed success, shall we say, on the battlefield, how are they doing on the information war? Uh, there is a tendency 
to be split between a, a minority minority of commentators that are less enthusiastic about the war. We see that happening. We have seen that happening for some weeks now. Before that, when the, the, the battle was not lost yet, or at least partly lost, as it is now, uh, we we have se we had seen many commentators very uh, you know enthused, very pro uh, Putin, very aggressive. Nowadays it's splitted. We see a small a small minority of people that are brave enough to express some doubts. It's it's not openly expressed. This is inside of Russia, you're saying? Inside Russian TV, yes. But a lot of those doubts are coming from his right flank, and you have to wonder, is that something that's orchestrated? Yeah, we uh, the, the, big, the big fear behind all that is that Putin could be uh, replaced by even worse people. That would be the Wagner, uh, you know, uh, the, the Lord War, War, uh, Warlord. That would be the, the Lord of the, the uh, head of the War, Wagner group. Sorry, it's a paramilitary uh, thing that was used by Putin heavily for his operations in Africa, namely. And uh, the Wagner Group could be a candidate, you know, for replacing Putin. Why? Because they have been starting to uh, advertise for themselves in Moscow. Uh, they bought a huge place. They are starting to gain some visibility in the uh, in the Russian uh, um, political scene, on the Russian political scene. So it could be worse than Putin. What could succeed Putin could be worse than Putin. Yeah, before Christmas, Vladimir Putin paid a rare visit to his top military brass and his uh, third chief of staff since the start of the war. There is a speculation over divisions and rivalries within the ranks with the uh, uh, regular military, the National Guard. There's uh, Ramzan Kadyrov's Chechen units. And as Philippe was mentioning, the head of the private mercenaries of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, reportedly seen in this video recruiting uh, among prison inmates. Now, again, you you wonder, are these re divisions real, Vivian Walt, or is this kind of all driven by the Kremlin, the, the, these, the, the, these possible splits well, or not? I mean, in terms of them recruiting prisoners, it does seem to be real because we have actually now got intercepted um, communications from some of them from the battlefield and also reports of some who have been killed on the battlefield. So it's not entirely fictitious. I think the problem for Putin, and it's been the problem since the day he invaded Ukraine, is that he no longer has his hands on the wheel, just to use that metaphor of him driving the truck. Um, he, the Mercedes. He got, he got, oh, pardon me, Mercedes. He, he got yeah. stick for it because the people were wondering why he didn't drive a Lada instead. Right. <laughs> A German vehicle. Um, but um, the fact is that the moment he invaded, a lot of what happened was out of his control. And to his total surprise, um, actually, it was in the control a lot of the Ukrainians, um, the last thing he expected, probably, before he invaded. So his destiny, What do you mean by, by that, that the Ukrainians? Well, in the sense that um, he can you know, create this narrative as much as he wants. But as long as the Ukrainians are prepared to fight, and we'll have to see how this, uh, the rest of this winter plays out, it's going to be a very, very tough couple of months ahead. As long as the Ukrainians are prepared to hang in there, and as long as the West is prepared to hang in there, a lot of what's happened since February 24th has been completely against what Putin expected, and it's left him in a far weaker position in which, uh, you know, the unity of NATO, the 
the enormous amount of weaponry going in from the West um, effectively strips him of a lot of the control that he thought he had. Yeah, despite the power outages, despite the cold weather, Ukrainians uh, sticking to their line, provide us with the financing and the firepower, and we'll do the rest. Dear partners, find an opportunity to give Ukraine reliable sky protection, a reliable air defense shields. You can do it. You can give protection to our people. A hundred percent protection from these Russian terrorist strikes. So there we, we well actually we showed a clip of Vladimir Putin addressing a domestic audience and there the Ukrainian president addressing the international community. I mean, Vivian talked about the, uh, the, the Ukrainians, as long as the Ukrainians are prepared to fight. The thing is, uh, on one hand, you have Ukraine on a, on a psychological warfare. You have the Ukrainians who, ha who show an incredible resilience. On the other hand, you have Russians who don't know why they're fighting, uh, who, who, who don't know why they're sending their wives and their sons to, do, to, do, uh, to the war front. When you don't know what you're fighting for, actually, it, you already lost it in a way. That's one. Two, what he seems to be saying in the past few weeks, uh, Mr. Putin, is that this is going to be a long-term, we would call it war, he calls it special operation, but it's also a, a, a dirty one in terms of not being, for, for the Russians, not being able to get the, the, the corpse, the bodies of the soldiers who died, because if you don't have a corpse, you actually don't have defeat, which you don't have to uh, say that you're losing a, a war. But there's also the fact that how long are the Americans and the Europeans going to be prepared to help this Ukraine in terms of ammunition and help? Let's not forget or shall I say, let's remember Syria, because there's a scenario that's very parallel between what's going on, where Russia was, uh, is still through Wagner um, in Syria. And the thing is, we don't even talk about Syria. There's a war going on. Um, there are still refugees. We talk about Ukrainian refugees, but what about the Syrian refugees that still continue? What about the Kurds? What about what's going on in Idlib? You know, and um, the, we have a short span attention, I think it's called, or and and uh, in the West. But in this case, it's closer to home. That's the difference for Europeans, especially for NATO. They, NATO borders Russia. Doesn't matter whether it's close or far. I see what you mean, but uh, we forget very easily. And I'm not sure with uh, elections in the U.S. in less than two years that this support is going to continue for Ukrainians. Nico Hines, have you been surprised? this sort of newfound purpose uh, with NATO, with uh, mm. th thanks to Vladimir Putin. Are you surprised that they have managed pretty much to hold it together? Well, I think if you couldn't hold it together in, in the face of this kind of crisis, then it really would be time to pack it up. I think it's interesting talking about it being on our doorstep or not. And I think to a lot of American voters, it's not on their doorstep and they're not especially interested in it. And I think as we watch what happens in Congress now, we've got a mm. Republican House of Congress. You know, how easy is it going to be to sign off the next package of aid? You know, they I think in November, 
um, they signed off a new bill that would finance about five or six months' worth of artillery shells. Unfortunately, it's going to take two or three years to deliver them. So we're already running into problems. And how much is that will going to be there? Because Vladimir Putin must be sitting there going, Donald Trump's going to be back in the White House soon, if, in, you know, in my, in my wishes. Um, I, can I hold out till 2024 when there's a whole new world to play at? Philippe uh, Chevrolet, of course, um, uh, your hair is not as grey as mine, but uh, you... Nearly, nearly. Uh, uh, I will be there one day. You know. uh, the, when I was growing up, the, it was the Cold War and the, yep. people worried about nuclear conflict. And if Vladimir Putin's on the back foot, people have dismissed uh, as a bluff uh, his talk of uh, uh, if things go really sour for him in 2023. Yes, but if he does that openly, I mean, it will be, there will be retaliations by the, uh, by the other regimes that do own the nuclear weapon too. I mean, France do, is a nuclear nation. We do own our own nuclear weapons. It's uh, limitless. I mean, it doesn't want to commit suicide. But they are playing with this notion uh, around Zaboricha, around the nuclear plant. And obviously the fact that both Ukraine and Russia would bomb this place uh, quite, you know, openly, uh, is obviously a way to threaten the, in, the whole international community that if any solution, a solution is not found... It's easy to be drawn in. Yeah, there could be consequences. And uh, I think the, uh, the Zaporizhia thing was a topic of discussion between, I guess, both China and India with Russia. And uh, this, is not, uh, this is a more efficient threat, even than the bomb. Now, many nations looked the other way in 2014 when uh, Russia uh, made its move for the east of Ukraine, uh, when it annexed Crimea. This time, uh, as Nico was saying, no going back to business as usual. That mystery explosion of the Nord Stream pipeline yeah. that link uh, Russia to Germany via the Baltic Sea, uh, serving as a reminder that despite the annexation of Crimea, Germany and most of the Europe Again, elected to ignore inconvenient truths to keep cheap natural gas uh, flowing to consumers. I mean, I say Germany, Vivian Walt, but the French also buy Russian gas, not as much, but they do. Absolutely. And given the state of um, France's nuclear power stations, more and more of it. Um, you know, we are in France are having to think about where else to get energy supplies from. Um, I would say that, you know, there was a lot of talk in 2022 about the energy crisis in Europe and Europe having to struggle through the winter. We have not felt it as yet. Maybe we will for the rest of the winter. But I think what's really worrying is next winter. And if this war continues, by the time we get to this point in 2023, Europe really is going to find itself with very low stores of oil and gas. Yeah, nations are having a scramble. The inauguration of a new nickel-fied natural gas terminal on Germany's North Sea coast earlier this month. Uh, a reminder that uh, uh, Germany and the rest of Europe have had to change their energy habits on the fly. Uh, that won't save citizens uh, from skyrocketing costs. And as Vivian was saying, uh, warnings to watch their thermostats when it comes to uh, 2023 and beyond. We're far from out of the woods. The gas supply in Germany is assured for this winter, provided that the German saving efforts and endeavors hold up. Yeah, it's such a different scenario than it was a year ago when you look at uh, 
uh, how we look uh, just when we open our uh, utility uh, bills. Yeah. Yes, but and also it's we we think about Europe, but also you know it's the consequences of the war we have, whether it's on energy or on food supply, we see it in North Africa, we see it in the Middle East as well. So it's a war that even to those countries that we were talking about that are not really impacted from the geography in a way, they are not too close to what's going on in Ukraine, are impacted. Actually. In their pocketbook. If, exactly. But even India, for instance, a country that seems so far away. But the thing that is very interesting that I was just, is you mentioned Nord Stream. And I remember a couple of days after Nord Stream, the Turkish, uh, the Russian president talked to the Turkish president and had this grand idea of saying, you know, you could sell to Europeans through the Black Sea uh, energy that will we will give to Turkey, and that's what's exactly what's happened. You've exactly. had uh, refined petroleum products in, exports from Turkey have shot up, and then you see other countries as well that said, "Hey, human rights." But oh, I remember some European leaders a couple of weeks ago who were actually going to Azerbaijan. I mean, let's let's do remember what ha has been going on in the in the Le Haut Karabakh, um, Nagorno Karabakh region, and so it's it's. All, nothing is basically what I'm trying to say. Nothing is set in stone in terms of energy. They keep saying that they will they will do all these changes for the transitions that the war has made it in order that we have to speed it up. But I'm not sure. I feel like the European Union is doing one step forward, two steps back, while it continues talks with uh, countries like Azerbaijan and. We talked when we talked about 2022 about Qatar, but Qatar is not only a country that mm. that has hosted the World Cup. It also is a country that's doing a lot of energy deals, and you, the Americans and the Europeans are there. Yeah, we heard some veiled threats from the Qataris uh, uh, concerning uh, energy exports uh, to the EU over that Qatargate uh, bribery kickback uh, scandal. And speaking of winters of discontent. Uh, the uh, term employed to describe Britain's strikes and economic morass of the late 70s uh, has been borrowed aplenty this holiday season. Among those walking off the job, nurses from the National Health Service, a first in 106 years, uh, uh, Nico Hines. Inflation would have happened even if Vladimir Putin had not invaded Ukraine. But uh, for Britain, it's a particularly difficult winter, particularly it being outside of an EU that's trying to pool its resources when it comes to oil and gas purchases? Yeah, look, it, some calculations suggest that kind of inflation in the West is averaging about 9-10% and maybe a third of that is to do with rising energy prices. The government in Britain has obviously been keen to suggest that it's all Vladimir Putin's fault. And in fact, one of the senior party leaders was <clears throat> was on television last week saying the nurses should consider that they'll be bowing to Vladimir Putin if they go out on strike, which didn't go down terribly well with um, the other workers. But of course, what happened in Britain a few months ago is, if you remember, this woman called Liz Truss became the prime minister. She started a run on the pound, there was a huge kind of economic collapse. And as a result of that, all of the inflation and economic issues that have abounded in Britain, as they indeed are in other countries, are being blamed in Britain on that 
mistake. And so the government have really got nowhere to run and hide when people like nurses come and say, hold on a minute, we can no longer afford to pay our rent and heat our flat. And uh, with, again, uh, being outside the club of the EU, is that a discussion in the in the UK going forward in 2023? It's definitely creeping back onto the agenda. It's very interesting, the Labour Party, which obviously was predominantly against Brexit and um, Sir Keir Starmer in particular was a vocal opponent of Brexit, but he has realised, no doubt due to intense focus grouping and poll numbers, that it was a vote loser to criticise Brexit and especially in the kind of in the last election that we had, Boris Johnson got this huge majority because he was promising to get Brexit done. And it it was it was a vote loser to come out and say that Brexit was a bad idea. But things are changing. If you look at the polls, they change almost every week now. The number of people who think Brexit was a bad idea goes up. Hmm. And that's partly because the people who voted for it are dying off and because more and more younger people are becoming voters. But I think once the Labour Party win the next election and Starmer is in power, then the discussion will really start. Until he gets elected, he's not going to really dare to go there. To, to go there. Now, while Vladimir Putin, as we said, has managed to inject new life into the NATO alliance uh, with newfound unity on defence, the scramble for energy resources and the race to convert to renewables could stoke new trade tensions between Europe and the US. During last month's state visit by France's president to Washington, his U.S. counterpart uh, made no apology for his massive energy package that bankrolls projects made in the USA. The United States makes no apology, and I make no apology since I wrote it for the, uh, the legislation you're talking about. But there are occasions when you write a massive piece of legislation, and that has almost $368 billion for the largest investment in climate change on all, of all of history. And so there's obviously going to be glitches in it and need to reconcile changes in it. I'm going home confident, but also lucid to what remains to be done on the European side, which is a good thing. I'm confident. <laughs> Philippe Moreau-Chevrolet, uh, French president effectively saying, uh, if the Americans are taking a page out of our book with the state subsidizing uh, these nascent industries like green hydrogen, uh, like uh, new batteries, uh, uh, and we're not able to get our act together, it's not America's fault. Yeah, he's right. It's uh, entirely Europe's fault. They've been doing some stop-and-go stop policies for years now regarding the re renewables. They have been, for instance, they subsidized a lot the, uh, solar, the, buy, the purchasing of solar panels and uh, the equipment of solar panels all over Europe. You could, uh, at some point, you could get money out of the state to, you know, uh, buy some, some, of, uh, some of them. Uh, there was a local industry, uh, you know, uh, being born out of it, and they cut the subsidies from one day to the other, like, I don't know, two years ago. Yeah, Germany used to make the solar panels, yeah. now it's China. No, but because of that, because they, well, first they decided that they would do something about renewables so they start to implement policy it takes years and then the policy is implemented and they start to give away money so there's a whole sector that is being born and after one year two years doing that they stop we don't know exactly why but there is a decision that stops it and then we move on some on to some other next thing but in the meanwhile this industry is destroyed 
because it's born with the help of the state. The help stops, the state stops to help, so it's destroyed. And then it moves to China because obviously China is cheap and uh, it goes on. It doesn't stop and go. First, we said the financial crisis was the make or break moment for Europe. Then we said, you know, the, the war in Ukraine was the make or break moment for Europe. Uh, is the energy transition now the war make or break moment for Europe? Uh, ab absolutely. And it's another make or break moment. I'm not sure it's the one. But um, as Philippe says, it's, you know, this is something that Europe's been talking about literally, I mean, as, as long as I've been around Europe, and they haven't managed to get it together. Um, Biden should not make any apologies for basically putting in place, you know, policies that are not just going to, you know, create jobs, but also make sure that the Democrats can get reelected, which has been a problem recently on this very issue. Um, the problem for Macron is that he doesn't run Europe. He runs one of the 27 countries in Europe, and there has been no coherence at all on how to create an industrial policy that creates batteries that can actually, you know, create electric vehicles at massive scale. Um, and uh, and this is the real problem going yeah, forward. The, the urgency of this energy transition is about much more uh, than war in Ukraine. It's an urgency felt the world over. Just ask the citizens of Pakistan, mm -hmm. home to the Himalayas, where when glaciers there melt, uh, the floods downstream, like the ones uh, seen last uh, uh, summer, provoke the worst uh, flooding in a decade in, in this case. Those images, uh, I should go assert, uh, were startling, and they were a big talking point at the UN Climate Summit. Um, and uh, there is this sense that uh, the urgency in 2022 was greater than ever. Yes, because we've seen images not only uh, of Pakistan, but also of Bangladesh, but also of here in the heart of Europe, whether it was in Germany or France, but also about the wildfires in Australia and the U.S. So not only, there is an urgency because it, it, it is spreading all over. Well, it's not spreading. It is uh, all over. But... The coherence that you were talking about, exactly. It's not only about the uh, France within the European Union, but it's also about the rich and poor countries. Let's not forget that one of the reasons why we are where we are in terms of the, the destruction of biodiversity is because of the it's because of the wealth that a few rich countries have have acquired and the. Um, Gaz effet greenhouse gases that they have emitted, and that, that that the poor countries or like countries like in Africa are not able to to str uh, to struggle alone with that. So so it's about how much budget are you going to give rich countries because you have in a way contributed so much to the destruction of humanity and of these countries, and that's something that not only European countries but the uh, developed countries are not eager to uh, put their signature on. Yeah, it's, uh, we, it's hard to put a, put, put a number on it. Um, how many challenges has Iran's Islamic Republic seen off since 1979? Now comes the question, if this time, this time it might be different.
The death at the hands of the morality police of 22-year-old Masa Amini, sparking a movement that's brought together rich and poor, Shias and Sunnis, citizens from the four corners of the country. With the new incident that happened, people are calling the morality police the death patrol because the use of force has never been effective anywhere in the world and wearing the hijab should not be in the law. I'm afraid of seeing them. I think it's a useless thing. They should let the people choose, like in all other countries. Each person should choose what she likes. Now, very quickly, since the month of September, Vivian Wall, it's become about much more than women's rights. Absolutely. I mean, this is, um, um, you know, it began with the death of one woman. And, you know, you can see this in other revolutionary countries. I mean, I grew up in South Africa. Same thing. It starts with the spark with one person or the Arab Spring, for example, the Tunisian Revolution. Um, however, I'm not that optimistic. Um, this is a regime that has lasted more than 40 years. It began putting down protests about the death of one woman. Now it's putting protests down protests that has to do with corruption and the economy and repression and, you know, um, a kind of suffocation of religiosity and all sorts of other things. Um, and I think that they are prepared to be as brutal as it takes and we've seen that in recent weeks with the executions of protesters. And unfortunately, I foresee this turning even uglier than what we've seen so far. Even uglier, I should go assert, uh, this is a, you could call it a sanctions-proofed uh, uh, regime in, in, in Tehran. Uh, what outside pressure can be brought to bear even? See, I think that sometimes it has to get even brutal, you know, very brutal in order to, I mean, facing the, the, the brutality of the regime, you have the courage of the Iranian people. And it's not only the women, it's also the men. It's not only the elite, it's also uh, the poor. It's not only in cities, it's also in villages. So it's something that's very spread, one. Two, uh, sometimes it has to get very dark before it gets light. In terms of we've seen protests in Iran. I remember 99, I remember 2009, I remember 2018. And this is um, the prolongation of that. It's, it's whether we will call it a revolution, I'm not sure. But whether it is going to change the regime, I'm not sure. But what is sure is that it's definitely changing something. It's saying to the government and to, to that government where they're only the old regime guys. You know, when you look, I mean, how how old is Khomeini? He's what, 81? And his health or plus, his health 82. is not great. Is he going to be able to, to continue this tradition while on the other hand, you have the Generation Z, you have the young, you have the ones who are protesting, who 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 are seeing how the rest of the world lives and who want to live like that. So what's going to happen in 2023? I'm not sure, but something, it's not a loss. It will never be lost for anything. Nico Hines? I think the regime is coming to a very, very critical moment mm. because... As you say, um, Hamani is 83 years old. There's persistent reports that he's suffering from cancer or some other kind of serious illness. He doesn't seem to be well. And the people that have been suggested as his successor are widely unpopular. Mm. Um, so 
this guy's been in power for 33 of the 40 odd years of this regime. And so he has inbuilt with him a certain sort of authority. When a new guy comes in and tries to marshal this incredibly difficult situation, he's going to have a huge problem instilling authority. And I think if these protests are still going, when a new figure is trying to bring peace and um, trying to bring everyone back behind the flag, I think they're going to have a hugely difficult time. Uh, we saw Vivian Walt's publication, Time, put uh, the women of Iran uh, on its uh, in, in front and center in its year-end uh, uh, edition. Uh, Philippe Morel-Chevrolet, the, uh, the way what's going on inside Iran is perceived here in France, your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, the first striking thing is that there is no pro-Iran uh, commentators. We don't see many people, but there could be. I mean, because now we have these twenty-four-hour yeah, news channels where they were. That, we could have seen that. Uh, I mean, uh, on the religious side, that we we could have seen supporters of Iran. We don't see any any of them really advocating or defending the regime, and uh, we we see the Iran regime as uh, somewhat somewhat contradictory and hypocritical because you, you see massive rapes of uh, of demonstrators by the local by the police in Iran. It's documented by every NGO on the in, in Iran. So it's it's like very you know it, you can't do that in the name of religion. Okay, we have seen that in other countries in other regimes. Uh, in Daesh did that a lot, but in Iran it's. Uh, somewhat more shocking because we thought Iran was a legitimate, more legitimate state and not this kind of a state. And uh, we, what we see is the violence against women that is uncalled for on any level. So it's shocking the whole West, the whole media community and everyone is really uh, against Iran now. And this, this is the moment when France could maybe do something. Maybe we could be brave enough, I don't know if the French government will do it, to, you know, really, you know, push against the current regime and try to to affect How? a regime change we have several, we have ties with the iranian regimes mainly the iranian regimes the iranian guys they, they stand up because of uh, because of us because of our support economic political support we do that behind the scenes but we don't really you know we didn't disconnect from the iranian regime so Vivian Wall? i well, Philippe raises an interesting question, and it's not just France, but at what point will other governments, and I think that this has to happen for anything really to change, will other governments begin to affect some kind of serious change and realize that actually the situation cannot go on? It's not like this is a kind of marginal country. Mm. This is a major oil power. It's a major force in the region. It's got, you know, it's got a serious number of people. It's got a huge population that's relatively global and well-educated, as we already said. And um, I think at some point, France, along with others, are going to say enough is enough. We have to kind of create, we have to find those figures who can effectively create a, a real regime change. Mm. Is that not what the regime wants, though? No, but also it's not. But we but have, 
we have to be very careful because change has to come from the inside mm. in terms of this is something that the yes i do agree in terms of the sanctions that's exactly what it, it it's serving you know the, the nuclear deal story was also a part of this but this change has to come from the iranians it has to come from the inside it's not because france wants it it's not because the united states wants it it's not because we decided to bring our democratic values to to a middle eastern countries it's because the Iranians want it for themselves. And that's a very fine line. All right. The, the, the new year begins uh, uh, with Lula's return as president of Brazil. Uh, it's followed by, we've looked at the calendar, elections are plenty everywhere from uh, neighboring Argentina in October, uh, Pakistan to Nigeria, where the race to succeed uh, Mohamedou Buhari in February uh, promises to be a, a bruising one. Uh, Vivian Walt, uh, it's the same two parties with a few outliers, perhaps, and there's this feeling of th the system is tired. In Africa's most populous country. And yet you look at who's up for re-election or election and you have the same figures again. Um, you have um, Atiku, who's uh, late, well into his 70s, mm. I believe, who's tried numerous times um, to win the presidency. And this might be his year um, because there is such a kind of... Uh, disarray, if you like, in politically in Nigeria. And, you know, we were talking before about Iran, a serious country with a serious population and a serious oil power. Um, here you have a country that is potentially enormously rich. It's the most populous country in Africa. Mm. And yet they haven't invested in their oil industry for years. They're producing way less oil than even the OPEC quotas will allow them to produce. And so, you know, people are suffering. There's very high unemployment, 20% or something inflation rates. Um, it seems ripe for a real political shakeup. All right, we'll see if that political shakeup happens, and we'll see if it's more bruising in Turkey, uh, where the gloves are already off, you might say, ahead of legislative and presidential elections scheduled for the spring. Um, we could show you images there of the popular opposition mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, who earlier this month was banned from politics and sentenced to two years, seven months hard jail time. His crime? Calling the Electoral Council idiots. He's appealing. The incumbent denies any malice. The court decision is only about a person's conviction for insulting judges. This is neither a political discussion, nor a battle of ideas, nor an electoral battle. Nothing to see here, Ayşe Gülsün. I don't see, I don't hear, I don't say. Um, the thing is that you mentioned the system is tired. Here is a country where the system is really tired. I remember uh, early 2000s when uh, then he came as prime minister, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, to government. The system in Turkey was really tired in terms of we had a really economic crisis. Uh, unemployment is very was very high. It was a year after a big earthquake. So we decided to give a try to this guy who was unknown at the time and who actually was known only as the mayor of Istanbul. 20 plus years later, 
we are exactly where we left off. Uh, the Turkish currency, let's not even talk about it, it's going to depress me so much. Um, I, it has de lost its value uh, up to 85%, and that's why that, I think that's maybe even more. Um, uh, the, 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 there are more intellectuals, journalists, activists in jail today in Turkey than actually out of jail. The Kurdish question, which, hey, 25% of Turkish population is known to be Kurdish, so maybe it's even 30%. It's the largest population, the Kurds, who do not have a nation, and that this, this president is actually showing as an enemy to the state, while they're a part of the state. Um, so I think... Again, to come back to the optimism, he has come in a time of crisis and he will leave in a time of crisis, Fee which is June 2023. Uh, Philippe Moreau-Chevrolet, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, he's proven in the past to be someone who does what it takes to hang on to power. There's talk sure. about uh, going after the Kurds inside of Syria. Um, he's issued threats against Greece. Uh, is he, is he uh, still the the odds on favor. After all, he controls the levers of power. Yeah, the, the main thing that we see across all these regimes, the Turkey, we see China, we see the Russia, we always, you know, we have an easy prognosis that all will end in democracy back again. But the fact is, this guy lasts. And the question is, how do you defend democracy? How do you uh, export it? How do you implement it in these countries? Because what we see is the rebellions. We see uh, revolutions even that don't succeed. And uh, we see the power of the states increasing with the use of police, you know, social media identification. And uh, this is preoccupying. Why? Uh, I would like to see this year in 2023, I would see one regime change. I would see one of these guys succeeding, Iran, Turkey, whatever. I would see one democracy uh, being restored. And I don't see that happening. And we, we, we talk a lot about the return of the democracy, but... Um, when? When will it be? Nico Hines? Well, I think there's more optimism maybe in Nigeria than there is in Turkey. Oh, come on, Nico! <laughs> um, this is the optimistic point of view. You've got, you know, you've got Peter Obi, who's this kind of, like, third-party challenger, and he is galvanising the youth movement. There's been big protests in and Nigeria. Do you think he could make it into the runoff? I think it's possible. You've got somebody there... Obviously, there were questions about how free and fair are the elections going to be, just like there are in Turkey. Um, but at least you've got somebody now who's risen to the point where they, have, they are being taken seriously and in some of the polls are doing, you know, doing very, very well. Um, obviously, there's always the question of will the security forces allow people to vote? Because the trouble with Nigeria, and um, I'm not sure how similar this is in Turkey, you kind of know where certain regions are going to vote. So mm. it's quite easy for the security forces to move in and say, actually, it's going to be hard for you to vote here in this in this area where we know that 80% of people are supporting the Labour Party candidate. Um, so it becomes very, very difficult. But at least let's try and raise up the voice of someone who is challenging the status quo. Mm. Before we go, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, our distinguished panel has prepared for you their tips and suggestions uh, for how to better prepare yourself for the year ahead. I'll begin with you, uh, Vivian Walt. What is your book or movie we should be watching or reading? Honestly, this, this whole discussion has been so depressing. I feel like I need, to, I need to find like a Disney cartoon or something, but... But I'm afraid to say, I think 
that people should watch the movie Compromise if they haven't seen it already. It's a French movie that came out mm. this year um, to do with Russia um, and based on the imprisonment of a French Frenchman in, in Russia. Um, it really captures, I think, the moment we're in, the, the power of these authoritarian countries to totally upturn one's life and make one feel that everything that you relied on as your kind of safety net is not as safe as you thought it was. Right. And sometimes life does imitate art. Uh, Philippe Moreau-Chevrolet, uh, your attention is also grabbed uh, by uh, events in Moscow. Uh, yes, the, uh, Le Match du Kremlin. I don't know mm. how to translate that. The... Uh, the, the magician wizard, of the Kremlin. The magician of the Hasn't Kremlin. Hasn't been translated yet, I think, Not yet. in English. Uh, it's in the process. I mean, it's been translated in many, many, many uh, uh, languages. The wizard of the Kremlin, excuse the me. The wizard of the Kremlin. And uh, Giuliano D'Ampoli, the, the author, is currently translating it himself in Italian. He's Italian, but he's been writing in French. And he's Swiss, right? Yeah? I think he's Swiss. Right? No, he's Italian. He okay. was a, uh, an advisor to uh, Matteo Renzi. Uh, when in his younger age, and he's uh, uh, been analyzing the chaos, chaos around us. I mean, the informational chaos in one famous book, Les Ingénieurs du Chaos. I don't know how to translate that, but chaos engineers, engineering chaos, maybe. It's all about you know manipulating social media in order to gain a political uh, success. And uh, this one is about uh, Surkov, uh, who is an advisor to Putin and did build a machine. Uh, which could be summed up by, you know, it's twisting the system until it breaks. Yeah. So you sl slowly twist the system. Uh, in, in, for instance, uh, the Kremlin did subsidize at the same time white supremacists in the U.S. and black extremists, uh, black power extremists at the same time. They subsidized both groups in order to create that tension. Right. And in the middle are the moderates, and the moderates are torn between these two and they can survive. And at one point, the theory wants that it breaks. And that's exactly the work that is done by Surkov. It's a level of sophistication that democracies don't have in mind. All right. And that book by Ju Giuliano D'Ampoli. I should go search. Armageddon Time by James Gray. Uh, remember this for the Oscar seasons, my friends. Um, I'm a big uh, fan of any movie by James Gray because for me he's going on the footsteps of uh, the great Scorsese and uh, Francis Ford Coppola uh, in terms of his cinematography. He is one of those unsung heroes of the film industry in the sense that what he does is called in French art and um, it's the story of basically it's based on his life uh, his childhood in 19 in the in Queens Late 70s, New York, early 19, 1980s um, it talks about his this, this Jewish boys friendship with a black kid uh, it talks about what it means to be an immigrant in America because his his grandparents are actually from Ukraine uh, it's about finding your voice as an artist and also the reason one of the reasons I wanted to tell you about this movie is that in times when these months we've been talking about Harvey Weinstein 2022 was the Me Too movement the movement's fifth year anniversary Harvey Weinstein was one of those men who actually wanted 
to kill um, the, 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 the final cut, who had the final cut on every movie that passed through him. And since he was God in Hollywood, a lot of uh, movies that James Gray did uh, did not find uh, the ending, the vision of the artist. So the power, and so the, I say power. The power to goes James back Gray. to the director, <laughs> uh, Nico Hines. Uh, my movie is Living, uh, and it's a, a fictional, you know, more like a more traditional movie that we might want to go to the cinema and see. Um, kind of more in the vein of the Disney picture that Viv is playing yeah, for. Yeah, I mean, it's an uplifting tale about someone getting a cancer diagnosis and soon to die. Um, so at first you think, oh, God, here we go. It's, it's optimistic. really uplifting. But what, what, what I would say is... Can't um, wait to see it, it, it Nico. It's, it's, it's beautiful, and it's... it's um, Screenplays by um, Ishiguru, right? And it's imbued with this kind of beautiful, um, wistful look at the way we live our lives. We we just get the train the same place on the platform every day. We go to the office, we do our job. We don't really engage with it. We just churning through the motions. He gets this cancer diagnosis. It's not like movies where he goes, oh, I'm going to quit my job and just spend time with my family. It's not that cliche. Instead, what he does is he realises if he actually puts his heart and engages with his day-to-day -day life, that there's a beauty in understanding that what you do actually is can be wonderful. You can have an impact on people. Um, and you might cry, but mm. I think it's beautiful. I've right. never heard Nico Hines this emotional. 2023, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Nico Hines, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank uh, Vivian Walt, Philippe Morel-Chevrolet, Aisha Goulsert, and uh, from all of us here in the studio and on the other side of the glass, I want to wish you the very best for the year to come. Thanks for watching. The World This Week is back next week.